very good two weeks at our church, uh, getting to see, partner with people as they are taking next steps in their faith. Last week, we had a couple baptisms, which was such a blessing. And then this Sunday, getting to take in nine new members. And then afterwards, several people spoke to me and they want to join as well. The Lord is at work and doing some stuff and it's so exciting. And to get to see people, partner with them as they are taking next steps in their journey. Well, so too for our church in Thessalonica today. We're going to stay in 1 Thessalonians. If you want to go ahead and turn there right now, we're going to be in chapter 4 today, of all things. And Paul, he has reminded this church, we've already borne witness to their amazing conversion, right? You used to follow idols, but you turned from idols to serve a living God. And you are not only serving a living God, but you are waiting in expectation for the return of Jesus. And you are imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. And so Paul is telling them how you've started this journey of faith and it's going so well. And I'm so proud of you and you're doing great, guys. Now it's time for more. Next steps, growth and grace in the journey towards Christ-likeness. So let's read together, if you would, uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord today. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you knows how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion, like the Gentiles who don't know God. That no one wrongs or exploits a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not only human authority, not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. Well, right off the bat, verse 1, he says, more and more. You've already been doing this, but I'm calling you to more and more. Your version might say, abundantly more, exceedingly more, abound more and more. Keep on keeping on. That must be the message version. Uh, but it's that idea of this forward momentum, of leaning into the future, of pushing ahead into deeper faithfulness, that momentum, that movement, right? Have you ever been to, like, a football game, and your team is not doing well, and then all of a sudden, the running back breaks through the line and makes like 20 yards and you're like, ah! and the whole momentum shifts. You been there? You know, Okay. If you don't watch football, I can't help you. I can't help you. You're on your own today. But um, when the momentum shifts and all of a sudden you feel that energy, it's like the whole crowd is like pushing the guy down the field and you scored. It's so great. But you feel that momentum, that forward movement, right? And so Paul is saying, guys, you've been doing great. You've been doing great, but it's time to go forward, to keep moving with that momentum as God has been calling you. He says, in this journey as Jesus followers, we don't stay the same. It's as if Paul knew our core values. Crazy, I know, right? They must be biblical or something. So what is this call to more and more? What does it look like to live into, to lean into that momentum as God is working in our lives? What does that look like? Well, in our tradition, the Nazarenes, we've called this this more and more, this call to more as entire sanctification, that call to holy living, to concentrate and give your consecrate and give your life fully over to the Lordship of Jesus. You see, countless people who have been found by God and who have been saved by his grace and forgiven of their sins 
testify to the reality that in spite of knowing that they've been saved, in spite of knowing they have been forgiven, they still find themselves struggling with the same stuff time and again. The same habits, the same hang-ups, the same failings, the same temptations, the same stuff as before. And so the question becomes, is this it? Like, is this salvation pardoned from sin but still plagued by it? Forgiven but not free? You see, in Western Christianity, Protestants and Catholics, us, that we fall in that category, have focused really heavily on that pardon, that moment in time where God has forgiven us. It's kind of like a courtroom metaphor, you know, like the, the gavel. The, it's like, bam, knocks it on the table, forgiven, clean slate, right? And so, but the thing is, in our Eastern Christianity brothers, the Orthodox, whatever, they have focused not so much on the pardon, but on that, that plague of sin, that need for healing, And so instead of focusing on this moment in time where, bam, God has forgiven you, they're saying, yes, I understand, I recognize the forgiveness, but I also recognize that, man, sin is persistent, is it not? I don't just need to be forgiven. I need to be healed. And so in a way, that is what Paul is calling us toward, this this image of sanctification, this more and more. He says, you've been pardoned, you've been forgiven, you've been converted from those idols, baby. But now, next steps, the more and more. It's the healing from the plague, from those persistent habits, those sins, those tendencies that we have not yet submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, that we have not yet submitted to the healer and new patterns established. It makes sense, does it not? I don't think there's a soul in this room who would not testify to the stickiness of sin, right? The persistent nature of it, turning up around every corner like a bad penny. I, the image that I thought of this morning as I was reflecting on this, it's kind of like sin. It's kind of like dog hair, okay? When I was growing up, I had a Dalmatian. I don't recommend it. They are dumb as rocks, okay? I'm sorry if you have a Dalmatian that you love, but you need to be honest with yourself. No, just kidding. Uh, but for real, you could look at this dog, and you would get dog hair on your clothing, It was so annoying. And I remember one Christmas, I was wearing this really pretty, like, velveteen red dress. And my mom wanted to take Christmas pictures with the dog. Because even though he was dumb, he was very pretty. And so she had us kneel down by the dog, take a picture. And I, like, I wouldn't touch him. I was like, I'll just kind of, like, go like this. Because I knew if I touched him, I'd have dog hair on my dress for the whole church day. And that was not acceptable, right? And that is how I imagine sin. It is so persistent. And it feels like you can just look at it and, oh, there it is again. It's in my hair. It's in my clothes. It's all over the place. Sin is everywhere, and it's persistent. Let's get real about the power of sin. But the thing is, we get that, right? We all get it. But I got to tell you, when Paul, and you're reading this text, he's talking about sanctification, then he takes this hard right turn to sanctification, holiness, and then, bam, sexuality. Of all the things, that's where Paul goes. And I have to pause and say, why, Paul? Why? Of all the things in human life that you could have chosen to make your point about sanctification, you got to go there to sexuality. Now, there are some contextual reasons why Paul probably went that direction. Like many communities in the Roman Empire, Thessalonica was no different. They had temples for all these gods. And part of the worship of some of those gods involved engaging with temple prostitutes. All right? Can't get people to church, apparently. That's how you do it. Uh, Acts of worship. Okay? It was bad stuff. And I might have lost you on that. Sorry about that. But that was a part of the worship. 
And there was this sense, this philosophical line of thought, and it's persistent in our day too, is that, hey, you know what's good, what's right, what feels good. That's what's right. If you're a man, especially. If you're a man, girls, nah, there's some more rules for you. But back in the day, if you're a guy, do what feels good. There was philosophical schools of thought that said that's the way you are called to live. Whatever is right is what feels right. And Paul is saying, hey, guys, let's be clear. We don't do that at Jesus Church, okay? The kingdom of God path has no space for that kind of behavior. Rather, Christians, we are called to a specific sexual ethic, faithful monogamous relationships, men and women covenanted together for life. But I don't think that's the only reason Paul takes this route with his holiness conversation. I don't think it's just about the weird temple stuff. I think Paul is confronting something that's a little bit more insidious, something a little bit more dangerous, that's false, but all too popular notion of the dichotomous self. Now, half of you just went, click. I don't know what that is, nor do I care, right? It sounds like a dinosaur. Dichotomous self, really? But what all I'm saying is this, this idea that we are people, that we are not whole units, but we are either composed of two parts, a soul and a body. And guess which one's more important in this model? The soul, right? We are bodies with souls. We are just kind of loosely connected, but only because our souls need a container to prevent us from going all Casper style around the world, okay? Bodies are seen as this necessary evil, okay? They are failing and they are sick and they are the cause of most of our problems, frankly, but they are necessary for this life. They are like a Tupperware for the soul, disposable but useful for a period, right? But man, as soon as Jesus comes back, we are going to drop this old shell like a hot potato and we are going to float on up to eternity, and that perspective, that dichotomous self that there's, we are a soul and we are a body, but man, the soul is definitely in charge. The body is just kind of like, uh, it's there. That affects how we see ourselves and how we imagine our future. And there is a, there is a singular problem with this model. Um, it's hogwash. <laughs> the idea that we are just souls who happen to lug around this messy, leaking, smelling, decaying body is false. And it is contrary to scripture. It's wrongheaded from the very beginning. Because do you remember what happened in the beginning? God created all the physical stuff. And guess how we, how we talked about it? He didn't say, oh, these nasty bodies. I guess we have to throw some of those in. No, he said, oh, they are so good. They are so very, very good. And if the creation narrative isn't enough to convince you, there is another little thing that happens later in the biblical story, a little thing called the incarnation the enfleshment of God himself who sent his son in a human body to live among us. Now, as the ancient church fathers are reflecting on this, like, why? Why would God come into a body? Because aren't they, like, not cool? Aren't the souls more important? Why would God choose to inhabit a body? And Athanasius, one of those fathers, said this. He said, I think Jesus became what we are that we might become like he is. Jesus became what we are, bodies, flesh, in order that we might become like he is, holy as God designed us to be. Jesus became what we are in order that we might become as he is. You see, in Jesus, God makes it crystal clear that holiness, right living, rightly ordered love is to be embodied. It takes place in an actual body. 
holiness, living into God's design for us, unfettered by the chains of sin, is to be embodied, lived out in the flesh. And Jesus showed us the way. He became flesh in order that we might become what he is, holy. The problems that we face, including these issues with sexuality that Paul refers to, the problem isn't the body. The problem is sin and death ruling and reigning in those bodies. See, Jesus makes it clear. The problem isn't that we are flesh. The problem is that we are sin sick through and through. But one day, that's going to change, right? Jesus will come back in all of God's glory to set creation right, to heal the brokenness, to call sin, sin, to bind the enemy, to restore God's good world, and it's all going to be set right. I'm having an issue. Sorry. There we go. There we go. Is that a little better? God's going to set it right. He's going to do it. But guess what? Even when he sets it right, we will still not be floating around worshiping God Casper style. We won't. Because like our resurrected Lord who was raised in the body to new life and new flesh, we too will be raised to new life in new creation bodies, healed forever from what ails us, physically and spiritually, in every way, all the consequences of sin and death erased forever in bodies. All of that to say, bodies matter. And God's plan for us to live into holiness involves the body. But here's the thing. I know that. I know that God made the physical world, and I know it's good because he made it so. I know that God calls us to live in holiness in this body. I affirm that. But there is still this huge disconnect between that knowledge and my embodied reality, my life in this body. Does anybody else feel that? I know that I'm pardoned from my sin. I know I'm pardoned. I've asked for forgiveness, and the Lord has forgiven me of my sin. And yet I sometimes still feel, experience the effects of the plague of sin, the power of sin, the consequence of living in a fallen world. And we can certainly feel it concerning the very issue that Paul addresses, sexuality. Now, it takes about two seconds of brainstorming to think of all the ways in which our sexuality is damaged by sin. I'm not going to encourage you to do that because then I'd lose you for the rest of the service. But there are some obvious ones, like some softballs I could lob out to you this morning, and I'd get lots of handshakes and high fives after the service for calling it like it is. Those obvious sins like homosexuality and polyamory and premarital sex and extramarital affairs. and The list could go on of all of the evidence of sin and how it's on display in human sexuality. But let's not get so distracted by our self-righteousness about the obvious sexual sins that we give ourselves a free pass here. Because Paul is honing in on this issue, issue of sexuality as it relates to a life of holiness, a sanctified life, Because through our sexuality, the most intimate part of ourselves, our wounds are most clearly visible. Whether we are straight, married, single, or not. Our wounds, our sin, sickness, the consequence of living under our lordship are most evident in our sexuality. That ache, the hunger for something we cannot name that leads us to binge on all the wrong things. The fear that we are alone. The fear that we are inadequate, that we are not enough. The insecurity, the sense that we're not loved as we are, thus we must ensure our place through power and assertion. 
the lack of satisfaction that no matter how much I consume, no matter the quantity or the nature of our sexual exploits, satisfaction eludes us and our loneliness persists. And our sin sickness sends a scrambling after a host of unholy remedies. If I'm hungry, then more is better. If we crave physical satisfaction, then, oh, more is better, and in whatever way strikes my fancy. If I'm afraid, I can fight back the fear with pleasure or with barrier walls or maybe even with just oblivion, with endless, mind-numbing entertainment. If I'm insecure, I can drown it out by shaming and controlling others. Our deepest Wounds like these are most visible visible in our sexuality and drive us to sexual sin even within the bounds of marriage. Sins like objectification, treating each other as a thing, as an object for our own pleasure to meet our own needs with no thought to the needs of others. Or the sin of selfishness, a myopic focus on our own wants and desires with no thought to the desires and needs of the beloved. Or the sin of manipulation, using sexuality as a means to control and direct instead of serving and giving. You see, wounds from our sin sickness lure us into these toxic patterns. And that's the crazy thing about our brain, about our physical brain, is that the more we practice these toxic behaviors, these patterns, the more we passively submit to our sin sickness, the deeper those patterns become entrenched in our brains. Neuroscience is proving this, that people, particularly people that are addicted to like pornography, it actually reroutes the brain, creating new pathways of pleasure. And if someone tries to break that addiction, those new pathways that are being denied scream. It's almost, it sounds it's as strong, if not stronger, as alcoholism. Our brains are malformed by this sin sickness. It's a real thing. We need healing. And so as uncomfortable and maybe surprising as Paul's explicit connection between sanctification and sexuality here, it makes sense because it pokes the finger right in our hurt. It's like a thumb on a bruise. But here's the thing I have learned about God. The thing I am continually learning about God is that God never highlights a hurt unless he's ready to heal it. God never shows us our sin without providing a way forward. So what is it? What is the way forward for us, sin-sick sinners that we are? What is the remedy? What is the solution for our selfishness, for our insecurity, for our fear, for our preoccupation with pleasure? for our insatiable appetites, for our ache. Well, we've already alluded to it, but the remedy is clear. It is nothing less than our sanctification. Now, some of you here have grown up in the church, and when I say the word sanctification, you bring about 15 suitcases of baggage with you, right? Because that word so often has been equated with a list of what I call to-don'ts, okay? Sanctification means I don't do all of these things, thus I am holy. It's fantastic, right? My dad grew up in a pretty old school Nazarene tradition. And he said when he was growing up, sanctified Nazarenes didn't smoke, chew, or drink, or go with girls that do. It's like this little rhyme. I'm like, wow, that's catchy. 
Really? Like that's the sum total of sanctification? Being made holy, living as God has called us to live is a list of to-don'ts? Wow. And then there's some of you who don't have any baggage today. You're saying you're throwing that word around like I should know what it means and I don't. And that's okay too. But let's be clear about a couple of things. What sanctification is not. Sanctification is not a denial of the body. Just being really spiritual, totally apart from all those silly physical things like food and water and sex and shelter and intimacy. If you really loved God, you wouldn't want or need those things. Wrong. That is not at all what holy living is about, denying the physical. God made the physical. Our bodies don't need denial. Our bodies need redemption. Sanctification is not a denial of the body. But it's also, and I've said this before, sanctification is not a magic wand moment where God bops you on the head like a fairy godmother of Cinderella and turns you into a sin-free, temptation-proof Disney princess or prince, as the case might be. It ain't happening. I'm sorry. It would be nice, but no. But sanctification, and this is key for people like me, is also not a spiritual fitness program. Just work yourself into the ground with these 17 spiritual habits, and if you do it just right, you will have a spiritual six-pack in 90 days or less. (laughs) Works righteousness, anyone? That's not sanctification. The call to holy living is not some otherworldly spiritual thing. It is a called current reality promise in the body. Sanctification is not some divine magic trick wrought upon us, and it is certainly not some hardcore spiritual fitness program we must stick to religiously, pun intended. So what is it? What is sanctification? What is this holiness to which God has called us, according to Paul? Well, I've come to believe that sanctification is simply saying yes to love, and love has a name, Jesus. Sanctification, being made holy, being remade in the image of God is saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to love. And how does that, that saying yes to love, how does it result in sanctification? Well, hear this, love expels sin. You see, when you say yes to Jesus and yes to Jesus over and over, love fills you up and sin has to find a new place to hang out because there's no room left. Love drives out fear. That fear that drives us to act in ways that are contrary to God's design. Love takes away that fear. It takes away the fuel for the fire. Love heals those sin-sick hearts. Love hopes against hope for resurrection and declares that death, you don't get the last word. Love restores us to wholeness. Love creates boundaries. Not to contain us, but to guide and correct us, to offer us paths to follow. In Psalm 25.10, the psalmist tells us that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and decrees. All the paths. All means all. The boundaries that have been given to us by love, like the boundaries in this passage concerning our sexuality, those boundaries have been given to us by love, not to cramp our style, not to control us, not to clamp down on our free will, but to protect us and to lead us toward full humanity. 
You see, the most amazing thing happens when we say yes to love. When we say yes to love, we become more and more human as God has made us to be. We begin to embody in our bodies holiness, that God way of being and living in the world. We begin to live and to love as we were made to do. And you know how it is. Have you been to that moment, that moment in your life where, you know what, you're doing something and you're like, wow, I was made to do this. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And you feel that in your soul and you're like, I feel more alive than I ever have. Living into holiness is like that because that is what God has made you to do. And as we live into that, we realize this is what I was made for. And there we find peace. Being who you were made to be as you trust the boundaries and the guidance of love. Love calls us, it invites us, it beckons us to this life of holiness. As one theologian put it, Dr. Boone from Trevecca, he, he says, we are, not call, we are called, we are called into holiness, not bludgeoned by it. This is not a demand this morning for moral reform, like you just need to get your act together. This is not a pastoral bully session to shame you for your sin and your wounds. No, this is an invitation from love to embrace life as it was meant to be. To trust the boundaries that have been given to you by love, trusting that they are for our good. Like I said before, God does not call us to deal with something, to address wounds or to confront sins without providing a means of our healing. And in this passage, God does that very thing. He says to, through Paul to the Thessalonians, he says, this same God who calls you to holiness, this same God is the one who gives you his Holy Spirit. And I love how Paul says it. He doesn't say God gave you the Holy Spirit like it was a one-time thing on your birthday last year. God gives you the Holy Spirit. And it brings to mind this image of this never-stopping, never-ending, always-flowing stream of the Spirit. Moment after moment as it replenishes and restores and refills and renews us, giving us everything we need to say yes to love. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. So the Spirit empowers. And what do we do? We respond. When the Spirit convicts, we repent. When the Spirit calls us to surrender an old habit, we surrender it with the support of this body. When the Spirit highlights unhealthy patterns, we look at them honestly. But with hope, we create a new pattern. We are sin-sick folks. We have been pardoned. If you have asked Jesus to forgive you, you have been pardoned from your sin. But we are so often still plagued by that power. But Paul has offered us the means of our healing, sanctification, saying yes to love. But we need to participate in our own healing, following the doctor's order, so to speak. You know how it is. Somebody gets hurt. Somebody gets sick. They go to the doctor. The doctor says, you know what? Here's some medicine, but you also need to change your eating habits and start exercising. We're like, thanks, doc. I'll take those pills and not do anything else you just said. And then we're surprised that we're not getting better. Hmm. Follow doctor's orders. Trust the boundaries that love have given us, the direction, the guidance, because they are for our good. They have been provided by love. There was some psychologist, I don't remember who it was now, they were working with a patient 
um, who was really struggling with their fitness. Like they were very unhealthy and they needed to create some new patterns. And so they were going to the gym and it was going really, really well, but they just, they weren't, they weren't losing the weight, their, their numbers and their score, they were not going down, they were not in a good place. And so the psychiatrist says, well, tell me, walk me through your day, how you do this. He's like, well, I go to the gym and after I go to the gym, I, I go home. He's like, you go home, like right home? I'm like, well, no. I usually go get some coffee at Starbucks. He's like, oh, coffee, like black coffee, right? Oh, no, you know, like a white mocha or something like a 1,000 calories. And they're like, I think I might have found your problem. And so you know what the psychiatrist said to the person? Was like, oh, you need to do some meditative practices. No, oh, no, you need to, you need some shock therapy. We'll just shock that addiction right out. No. You know what he said? You need to take a new route home. So take a new route home. Go around. You see, we trust that the Spirit's going to awaken us to the areas in our lives that we need to submit to his lordship. And we trust that the Spirit is going to empower us to make the change. But we need to respond with our cooperation. Maybe you need to take a new route home. Separate yourself from what is calling for your heart. If we've asked, you see, if you've, this morning, if you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins, you are pardoned. You are forgiven. That is the first step. And if you haven't done it, today's the day. Jesus, I have done wrong, and I want you to be in charge. Confess your sin. But maybe it's time for that more and more that Paul's talking about, those next steps. Maybe you are tired of living with the plague of sin, and you are ready for that next step saying yes to love, saying yes to Jesus on the throne, not you, saying yes to love in order to find healing and wholeness and freedom. Is love calling you? Well, we're going to kick it old school this morning. The band wants to come up. We're going to sing a song called I Surrender All. You You might know it. He says, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. If you are being called by love, say yes. He is trustworthy and he does not call you to something he will not empower you to do. So whatever you need to do, if you need to come and pray, you don't join the church. We're not going to think you're a sinner. We're going to think you're saying yes to Jesus. If you need to pray where you are, you do that too. But let us pause, create this space to say yes to love. Lord, that is not just a song we sing, it is a prayer we pray. Lord, we surrender to you. You have pointed out, I am trusting, you have pointed out the ways in which we are still living under the plague of sin. And we don't have to. Through your spirit empowering us, you can call us forward to say yes to love saying yes to you, trusting that you will make a way for our obedience. You do not call us to something you will not empower us to do. You do not highlight our wounds without offering us the healing. So we thank you for that provision. Would you give us the courage to trust you, the courage to say yes to love, trusting that you will meet us there. You will meet us in that yes. And you will make a way forward for us. May we respond with true faith and trust. And may we turn to this body that you have blessed us with, this community, 
as we seek to live in obedience. May we support and challenge and encourage one another on this road of obedience. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? May you go from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to say yes to love, to trust the boundaries of love, that you might live in true holiness and righteousness. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.